You are listening to the Restoration LA podcast. For more, visit us at restorationla.org. Well, I'm going to have her share a couple words, but first, just in relation to what Jody and Steve said about our appearance, I, um, Steve, I'm going to get him for that, but (laughs) yeah, I, I, uh, I cried when we showed up to California for not really because of what the Lord had done, but just because I didn't have to endure one more winter. And I see that you guys are going in summer. So you'll, again, like, you'll be really impressed. Those of you that make it to Chicago, you'll be like, why don't more people live in Chicago? Like, this is just such a beautiful city. And you'll hang out with all the people from Anthem. And and it's just like, and you guys all live in the city together. And it's just like such a great, like quality of life. And then, and then they'll say, yeah, it's so awesome. And then they'll start rattling off like what the rest of the year looks like. And, and then uh, reality hits. And um, I just want to just encourage you, if you need, if you need uh, a voice of reason, you're in the right city. And please, please don't. Just don't. Um, most, of my, most of my attire when I'm in Chicago is like just making fun of the fact that it's cold for eight months of the year. So I think Steve really appreciated that. But I was actually going to just say, just from a pastoral like, standpoint, I've, I've looked up to Jody, not obviously physically, ever, but, but, um, but just, just on, like a, on, a, on a beauty level, like you've got probably the best pastor hair. I don't know, you're not showing it off today, but I've, I've actually been jealous of your pastor hair from the face up to the top, everything. Just it's like, he's a well-groomed man, this, this man. And, um, Is such a thing as pastor hair? I mean, I didn't know there was until I met Jody, and um, he, he introduced me to skinny jeans. Um, these are actually like skin tight, but I have got chicken legs, as you can see. These are skin tight. Jody's actually wearing skinny jeans, too, but those are released, relaxed fit. Right. That's what, that's what I heard. Yeah. So anyway, I, I have a lot of jealousy for your style, too. Um, but uh, in all seriousness, um, this couple were the only friends we had when we landed in, uh, in Pasadena, what it was, not, not quite seven years ago. And one, one thing that, that stands out to me, even the prayers this morning, is that there's just not an ounce of self-serving ministry goals attached to them. And your whole house carries that even if you don't realize it. The way that the way that they pour out to pastors far and wide here in the city, in Mexico, across the nations. Um, I mean, you're paying a high price for that, it sounds like. Your, your kids are going to be into the nations, and hopefully they'll return, but they may not. We'll see. <laughs> this is because of how they sow their seed. And, and I must say, um, I was just listening to a pastor's podcast this week because um, I don't know if you realize it, but the last couple years for pastors were super awesome. And, uh, <laughs> and there was a, there's a couple of pastors podcasts I listened to just for my own self encouragement. And, uh, there, there was, there was, uh, I forget what the guy does, but, but he had been a pastor for a few years and then he, he quit and he goes, because pastoring is legitimately the most difficult leadership role on the face of the planet. And I said, I feel so seen and heard and loved. And <laughs> that was just really I, might, I was working out, and I, I'm not sure if it was sweat or the trickle of emotion coming down my face that really ministered to me, but the, the reality is, is most pastors, not because they don't want to, they just don't have the capacity to look outside themselves. They're in survival. This couple, I think, regardless of the circumstances of what they've gone through, and they've gone through tons, they never stop 
sowing into others and, and other pastors. And that tells you something about how they love you all and how they, they lead their leaders is because it's not about themselves. You, you know that there's actually like zero, zero investment you get from pouring into another pastor. Like you're never going to get that back in terms of like anything that you see other than really believing that the kingdom is God's plan for the world. Like it shows how much you really believe the gospel by how much you're willing to sow into things that you'll never actually see a physical return on. So that's what I have to say about them. I think you have some things. Yeah, there's my wife. And uh, she's going to do the message this morning, I think. I'm just kidding. But she just has a couple of prophetic words to give you. She says a couple. But when you ask, hey, babe, will you pray into God's heart for this family? I'm like, yeah, sure. Been praying all week. And when you have five kids, you sit down at 6 a.m. the morning of. And then the Holy Spirit has a whole lot to say. So I've tried to condense it. I was going through my notes. And you're like, okay, you're making me nervous. Really, do I need to put my notes down and give you the mic? Like, well, maybe we'll see how maybe. it goes. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to start out. Actually, I just had two specific people. And then the rest of the word, it felt like a word for your church to either completely flush or receive. Um, but I felt first over you, Kathy. I felt like the Lord said you have been faithful with little. There is increase in authority coming and your capacity is expanding. And I know I've received capacity words and I'm like, get behind me. I know what capacity means. That means more work, more responsibility, more weight coming upon you. But I felt the Father say, I trust you even more than you trust yourself. And so there's increase coming. And then Chloe, I felt like the Lord said you are a woman of influence and that his compassion is going to lead you indeed the healing and the restoration of many lives. And I know it's Restoration LA, but I saw literally in your hand hearts of stone that were black and cracked and falling apart. But felt the Lord said, hearts are safe in your midst. In your space, there is no unsafe moment, unsafe person, but it's your compassion. Like Jesus, compassion always preceded healing. Compassion that's going to move onto the restoration of hearts and the restoration of lives. And so that influence, it's not just for your immediate circle. I saw people even on the outside watching watching how you related to one another, how you related to friends, and how you related to people that maybe weren't so kind to you. And they're like, there's something different. That woman is not of this world. Tell me about it. Mm. So I just saw the Lord using your influence into the future. Okay. That was the short part. Um, And I've been in... Sorry, babe. It's not going to go that short. (laughs) The end of Acts, Acts 27 and Acts 28. They're very bizarre stories in scripture. But once you go deep into it, there's huge kingdom keys. And I felt the father say, go back there. Go back to the last chapter of Acts. And he wants to say to you guys, your detour is not a sign of defeat. So what Paul, he was um, in this whole shipwreck journey, he was on a journey to Rome. But where he ended up and what we read about in scripture is this story of him on the island of Malta. And it was so went with what um, Steve, I believe his name, Steve got up here. He said, in our minds, we often hear, I can't, I can't, I can't. But I felt the father, so his presence just dropped when he said, he can and he will. So Paul, as I said, he had set his sights on the great city of Rome and not this insignificant island of Malta. Sometimes we get so fixated on the what, we can get prescriptive on the how. I felt God saying, open your hand, and you will see how this detour is not a sign of defeat. 
Don't doubt in the darkness what God has said in the light. And then I felt him say that some of you might feel like you're going through a second wave of refining. I know for us, the past two years have been straight out of the pit, but yet you look, once you're kind of step a little bit out of the pit, limping along, that you're like, I've actually got a lot more mature and my capacity to release the kingdom has increased. And I actually love people. I don't just like them or I actually like people. I don't just love them. You know, it's easier to love rather than to like. <laughs> Why is that so true? So, yeah. okay. Um, chapter 27, we're going to, it's essentially Paul's on a ship and there's, he's just come out of years of imprisonment. The process has been much longer than it should have been. People, they're making stupid decisions all around him that completely ruin his plan. And then he gets stuck in a storm and then he almost gets killed because the soldiers are wanting to kill him. And even though by, he was the way that they got saved, this is all in chapter 27. Mm. So he gets uh, finally out of the ship. They see land. It's an island, island of Malta. And they arrive. It says, um, the native people showed us unusual kindness, say favor. Uh, but when Paul, oh, it began to rain. And it was cold. I'm like, how are they cold? It, they've been on a ship for weeks. But it says, when Paul gathered a bun bundle of sticks and put them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. And at this moment, I think Paul, if I were Paul, I'm thinking, oh, for the love of God, like I've just been through years of imprisonment. The process has been so much longer. I've had to deal with all these stupid people, not li listening to my apostolic wisdom. Side note, listen to the apostolic wisdom. It'll save you from almost drowning. But he finally gets to down dry land and a snake jumps up and bites him. Battle after battle, wind after wind, storm after storm. And when you finally think, oh, I can relax. No, he gets bit. And I feel like that's kind of bit, we've been in that place where it's, we've come out of COVID, sort of. And then you hear something else, a shooting. Like, what is happening, God? Why do I feel like I'm getting bit again? I want to pause and notice that it's the heat, the heat that manifested the snake. In the cold, snakes get dormant and sluggish. Paul, he grabbed a bundle with the snake previously in it, but you turn up the heat and the snake manifests. I felt the father saying that when, while some of us and some of you may feel you're going through this second almost wave of refining, things are coming to the surface that you're like, I have dealt with this. Why are we dealing with this again? Or why is Sally Rear dealing with this again? And I felt the father say, it's the heat of my presence. And there, in the heat of my presence, there's an increase of anointing. And there's an increase of anointing in this church. I feel the presence of God so strongly when I'm even standing up here right now. And when this anointing, think about it, when Jesus walked down, demons manifested. Did Jesus cause the demons? You can't give what you don't have. No, but the anointing was so strong in his life that stuff started coming to the surface. It felt, and the father's saying it's an invitation because the anointing in this place has increased. The invitation is also the grace has increased to walk into the fire. And I want you to notice, okay, so that hand, it gets bit by a viper. And at first the islanders, they say you're a murderer. And then he doesn't die. And then they say you're a god. Like, am I a murderer or am I God? Like, which is it? And the father's saying, it, like, don't worry about what people say. Your success is not about how people, they might see you as a murderer, they might see you as a God. Your success ends with me. 
But three days later, sorry, babe, I know you're back here. <clears throat> I have a message to preach. Yeah, I might need to sit down. So <laughs> it's okay. Have some yeah. of your water. No. Um, okay. Three days later, after this man who's gotten bit should be died, it says it happens that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed and put his hands on him and healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases came and were also cured. Three, I get really into numbers. Christians does not get into numbers, but three is a significant number because it's the number of resurrection. It's a picture of the cross and a resurrection moment. The reality of where the cross and the resurrection are outworked in everyday life. So I want you to pause and just think, what's the hardest thing happening in your life this moment? The very thing the enemy tried to destroy, Paul, three days later, Jesus is using that same hand to bring healing and mercy to that whole entire island. The very thing that was, quote unquote, bitten by a snake, it really was bitten, is the very thing God uses to bring healing and breakthrough. Hold fast to what God is saying. Hold fast to what he said and shake it off. And there's Taylor Swift song, shake it off, duh, 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 duh. shake it off. I think that's Taylor Swift. I'm not sure. He's better with music than me. Um, but I felt the father said the invitation is simple. See what the enemy's trying to do. Find the power of God through it, and then you will have authority over it. So in closing, um, I just as you've just pondered, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit. I love to lead into encounter. And I'm not going to do that now because we'll finish with an encounter. Um, but just to go to the... Holy Spirit, I wonder how you're going to use that very thing that seems like it's being attacked, whether maybe it's your health is under attack. How is God going to use that to minister healing to others in just a few days? You feel like your finances are under attack. God, how are you going to use that to bring breakthrough financially to someone else in three days? And even over Jaime, over, I just felt this even, Jamie, when you were praying, over Christus Vide, is that how you say it? That we just prophesy over you right now in Jesus' name. We say, I wonder what God is going to do in just a few days. The resurrection power is the same here as it is there. And we say you will rise out of this bed stronger and greater and more on fire than you've ever been before. So, Restoration LA, I just say your detour, it is not a sign of defend, defeat. Don't doubt what God said in the darkness, what he had said in the light. The heat and increase of anointing, it's in this place. And his goodness is running after you. Because remember, how does the book of Acts ends? It says Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God with all boldness and without hindrance. So those storms, they will cease. And I bless Amen. you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I don't need it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you again. All right. Well, that was my intro. And uh, I'm not going to talk at you long, but... Um, I do have uh, a, another scripture I'd like to, to look at briefly. But first, I just want to say, um, I, I did play, as you can see, obviously, I played a year in the NBA. Uh, my dad's from Norway. I, I was in Norway for a year, and I call the Norwegian Basketball Association the NBA, if that's okay with you. Uh, so the details of the pay and, and the prestige is a little different. But um, when I was in Norway, I was 1920 at the time. Um, I really did play basketball there. It's basically like high school ball, if you want to know. So before you get all impressed, uh, I had to learn to cook when I was over there, which was very traumatic for someone who'd had his mother cook for him for his entire life. 
But I found out that my mother was actually a very average cook and that I could actually do this. And, and so my, my, goal, my goal was actually to get a lot bigger and stronger because, um, because of my height. People thought that I wasn't just supposed to shoot threes. And so I had to pound down low with these big guys. So I was trying to bulk up, which didn't work very well. But I did get in really good shape. And I got really used to eating chicken breast for like five and a half meals a day. And because of that, I got really good at cooking chicken. Like, just like, if you want me to cook you a perfectly cooked, and I don't know anyone that doesn't overcook chicken breast. It's offensive to me now. Like when I get an overcooked chicken breast, I thought chicken breast was disgusting. And then I had to learn how to cook it properly. Actually tastes quite good. I came back on a, on a trip and I cooked some chicken breast for my mother. And have you ever like had a food moment that kind of compares with like a Holy Spirit moment? And, and it's like the earth stands still. You, know, you close your eyes and, and like, you like breathe in deep of something kind of outer body experience. Yeah, I mean, food, food can do that, right? And my mom did that with chicken breast that was forged in the disgusting halls of a student kitchen in Oslo, Norway. And I learned how to cook chicken really well, that's all. And so the, the thing, though, what was so amazing is she just had this like look on her face like, I have never. And it was a proud moment. I was, I'm not going to lie. I, I don't cook a whole lot of things, but when I cook some chicken, I hopefully it's pretty good. Point is this. You can take something that has been dry, mundane, and familiar your whole life, and in one moment, you can have a new encounter with it that just opens you up to a whole different realm of possibilities. Chicken breast can do that. I just want to, to just prick your heart a little bit. The Word of God can do that. <laughs> where, where has it been a little bit mundane and, and numb and dry? And, do you, you know, you, when you open up, like, your daily devotional or a preacher gets up and starts going off, like, I know this one, so I'm going to check out. I'm going to wait till he, if, he, if he gets excited about something, maybe I'll listen. But, but other than that, like, I know what he's talking about. I've heard this story a million times. Um, the Word of God is like a sword, it says, living and active. Um, another thing about the Word of God is, is this. In fact, the prophetic was re introduced into much of the American church through scriptures. In fact, the first NCMI conference I ever went to was in like 2008 or nine. We went over to Atlanta for like a prophet's prophecy and praise. I still remember the name of the conference. And, and at that, there was this guy named Dick Mills who's passed away now, but he was a very well-respected prophetic voice. He's from California, actually. And, and um, yeah, he was this frail, like 85-year-old at the time. And so um, he's known, Bill Johnson and others have, have basically coined him and a bunch of other prophetic voices in the era that he was in as key to reinstating the gift of prophecy into the American church that had been abused, misused, and therefore they feel like had been removed from much of the church because of the abuses. And so they, they, those prophetic voices reintegrated the, the prophetic through scripture. So he only prophesied with scriptures. And he had memorized thousands of scriptures in different translations. So I still, we have in our journal, like the, the scriptures he gave us. And he would give three different, four different translations. I mean, what kind of brain do you have to memorize? Like, I can't memorize like regular English translations. And the guy's got four, five different translations down. The, the, point, the point is this, is the word of God and the spirit of God, the word and the spirit. When they merge, there is catalytic, catalytic fire. 
And this is a house that I know believes in the word and spirit. One of the things in the passions and calling on our life is to be a bridge in the realm of the word and the spirit. And, and when you've got the word of God fueling your activity with the spirit of God, something happens. I just want to give you some stats. Who likes stats? Three of you? Fine. <laughs> going to give it anyway. You're going to like stats after this. Um, I, I, I'm just kidding. The, this, guy, this guy named Scott Lindsay did a study for the Center of Bible Engagement. 40,000 believers were, were, uh, were interviewed for this study. The key question of the study, are you ready, is how we, the church, are engaging with Scripture. That's it. How are we engaging with the church? And then they did this. They noticed that a typical Jesus follower, if they get in the Bible one time a week, it has almost no effect on their life. Meaning what? I know, I know all of you never miss a Sunday. Right, but if you heard 52 weeks of Jody, Nessa, whoever's preaching here, 52 weeks a year, and that was your only time in engagement with the Word, it will make no impact in your life. Sorry. <laughs> I'm like, love the research. That is super uplifting as a pastor. Sweet sauce. So uh, one time a week, nothing in key areas of life transformation. Um, two times a week, you know, maybe, maybe after like the 72 hours of your Sunday high wears off and you get a little Wednesday time in the word. No, twice a week, it does negligible effects on the, on the life. Three times a week, there was like a blip on the map of the research. A heartbeat, if you will. Then at four times, you expect maybe just like another little beep, beep. But no, like off the charts at four. It's, it's significant, four. She says, I don't like numbers. Here's where I do like numbers. <laughs> four times a week. There's seven days in a week. All that means is if you spend more days in the word than not in the word, it has a massive impact on your life. But here's what, it, here's what the impact they found. Here's the radical, the radical shift. Feeling lonely. We're in a loneliness pandemic. 30% increase just by spending more days in the word than not. 32% drop in anger issues in those who spend more days in the word than not. Bitterness in relationships, marriage, kids, etc. 40% hit. Alcoholism drops 57% by reading your Bible. <laughs> Feeling spiritually stagnant drops 60%. Viewing porn drops 61%. Sharing your faith <laughs> increases 200%. And discipling others, 230% increase by just spending more days in the word than without it. Why? Because you gain a confidence in God's word. You're blessed by just letting his voice refresh your life. So this is my encouragement to you. Go take an anti-lonely, anti-anger, anti-bitter, anti-lust prescription of God's word and go take a word bath in your life. And if you literally screw this up multiple times a week, it's okay. This isn't like religion, law. You got to do this every day. Just literally make this a way of your life where you just do it more days than you don't and watch the impact happen. So on that note, Let's have some chicken breast. Uh, the prodigal son, Luke 15, 11 to 32. I'm going to run through it really quickly. And I know it's familiar. I'll stop and make a couple comments. 
Uh, so there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. In other words, what the translation in the original Greek means is, Dad, I wish you were dead. And he divided his property between the older brother and the younger brother. So both the brothers that are in the story, there's only three characters, the father, the older brother, and the younger brother, the prodigal. So what it means is the older brother had already gotten his share at the time that the father gives the younger brother his share. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living, which meant that he did anything he wanted to, prostitutes and beyond. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, sweet timing for him, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, meaning they were in another country, non-Jewish country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. They don't do bacon in Israel. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. There's a law in Israel where if you own a field, you leave the outskirts. It's kind of like the 10% tithe for them so that the poor can feed among it. When you leave the safety of the people of God that are living with the generous heart of the Father, that's always ready for those who are on the outskirts. He left that safekeeping, and there was nothing for him but the pigs that disgusted them. When he came to himself, verse 17, he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. So it's like, my life sucks. My dad's servants have a better life than me. I'm going home. I will arise and I'm going to go to my father. But first I'm going to rehearse a speech because this is going to be a big moment for me and pops. So he rehearses this speech and it goes something like this. Father, I'm going to go back and say, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. You can, you can feel like his very formal father. I'm, I, I've sinned uh, against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And, but he means it. He's broken. And he says, this is what he's going to tell his dad. Treat me as one of your hired hands. All he wants from his dad is to be treated like the guys who just get fed for their work. He's broken. He's full of shame, and he's feeling worthless. And he arises, and he goes to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Why does his father see him? Because his father's looking for him. What Jesus is trying to communicate is a re-understanding of what the father is like, his entire ministry. In fact, when you go to the scripture, you're asking one question. I used to teach Bible to, to Bible school students. When we did interpretation of the Bible, you can get really geeky and obnoxious. One lesson, I go, here's the only thing you're asking every time you go to the word. What does the scripture tell me about what God is like? Don't tell me about what Joseph is like. Don't tell me about what Abraham is like or Moses or Esther. It's about him. The main character is always him. So when you go to the word, you're first asking, what does this show me about his character? And Jesus is coming in and he's, he's completely shifting the understanding that the religious system had about God and performance and what you needed to do for the father in order to gain his approval and in being in right standing. The righteousness factor was the Jewish way. They knew they were different than everybody else. But at the same time, it didn't matter if you were a Canaanite, a Philistine, or a Jew. There was still this concept of performing for the God or the gods. And there was a twisting where the Jews were becoming like the people around them. And that's a form of idolatry. When you start making God into your own image or someone else's image, it's always a form of idol worship. 
And the good news of that is idol worship will never make your life better. And so he's gotten a taste of that with the pigs. And he's being humbled. And he's being confronted with the shame of his own existence. Original sin is about shame and worthlessness. Adam and Eve in the garden, they're exposed and encountered the reality of sin. What is the image? Nakedness. Shame. At the root of sin is an issue of shame. And the problem of the religious system is that they try to gain their righteousness by something that they attain through achievement. And his brother is sitting there doing all the right things and being faithful. And comparison creeps in. And it has his heart. And so the confrontation is with a good father that represents Christ who's representing his father. And how will the two brothers respond? And it's really easy for us to not identify with the prodigal because none of us like slopping around with pigs and sleeping with prostitutes. Probably. And, and then <laughs> I'm making some assumptions. But, but the, 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 the other thing is, is that it's hard for us to look at the older brother because he just seems like a jerk. What's, the older brother comes in. And of course, the father doesn't even let him do his rehearsed speech. He gets halfway through the rehearsed speech and he cuts him off. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Shame. And the father cuts him off before he can say anything about being a hired servant. That part never gets said. It's not an option for the father. He wants his son back. Some of you today, you want to come home. You're already in the room. You spend time with the father, but you still have shame and worthlessness keeping you from being a son or a daughter. You're allowing something that may be something or someone put on you. Maybe this week or maybe in childhood or maybe throughout the years. And you're carrying a weight of shame or guilt where you don't feel qualified to actually be a son or a daughter. You don't feel qualified to have the same kind of relationship that, I don't know, the front row has, I, whatever your comparison is. And the father says, being my hired hand is not an option. I'm looking for you and I'm inviting you to have the fullness of restoration put on you. And that's the heart of this house, your restoration LA. And it's only when you realize the depths of your shame that has been covered, that you can step into the fullness of your identity and your calling and your mission. Some of you are frustrated with the fullness of your, of your spiritual calling and even your practical calling. You're calling in the marketplace, you're calling in a school, you're calling in, in your family is going to be beneath the level that Jesus is inviting you when you are still not believing what he says about who you are. Because many of us have been brought back in. He puts the robe on you. He puts the ring on you. This is all the things that happen. The father does. He sees him. He's looking for him. He runs at him. He's willing to take on the shame of the society 
Because running like that in that culture was like, no, you don't lift up your dress, man dress. It was a man dress. And you, you run. You can't. He takes on shame for his younger son. But what people don't realize is he takes on shame for his older son. His older son comes in and is questioning, what's going on here? I hear there's a par- party for the fat, the fattened cat. His, one of the other servants said, there's a fattened calf is being put in for a feast. Your brother's home. And he goes, what? One commentator said, that fattened, you only fatten a calf for a good reason. Why did he fatten the calf? Well, we don't know exactly, but there's two reasons. One is because he's expecting the younger son to come home. And he's living with a prophetic eye. Or, or that older son was about to get married. Or he was due his. And the father gave that fattened calf and that party to the younger son. Because he, in the midst of demonstrating what the grace of the kingdom looks like, it will stir up the deepest parts of the darkness of your own soul. Grace will expose the darkness of your heart. When you see someone else receive the grace that they don't deserve, it's really easy for you to put yourself in a place of comparison and go, where is mine? And most Christians will never say it out loud. I know I won't. I won't even write it in my journal. I'll mumble it under my breath, or it'll be a thought that I'm not even willing to admit that I'm having. Where are you at? What are the thoughts of comparison that happen when you see someone shine or get recognized and you know that they've got a character issue somewhere else? (laughs) What are just even the dynamics when, when you work your tail off for a dream and someone else that's just like had the dream last week and they've already, yeah, that's great. How many, what was your sales? That's really good. Yeah, um, why do they have so many followers? No one follows me. Uh, what is, like, what is, prob- what is wrong with me? I do everything that I'm supposed to. One of the beautiful things about our, our nation is, is that we have tried, imperfectly, but we have tried to remove the barriers from the little guy and gal to remove as many systemic areas that keep someone from moving up. We all know in this room that that is not, has been imperfect. Amen. But I wasn't planning to share this one. I'm a huge Liverpool football fan. I never use sports examples because I've been told in LA that nobody cares, but, (laughs) um, I'm not actually going to talk about the sports. I, I, I brought my sons to their first like match in a pub because they were in the European final yesterday. And Liverpool is a town. It's a blue-collar town on the coast in England. It's where the Titanic was made. It's where the Beatles came from. A lot of fun stuff comes from Liverpool. But um, they just won a different tournament a few weeks ago where Prince William was there to present the trophy, and they did their national anthem. And uh, uh, people from Liverpool are called Scousers. 
know what the Scousers did during the national anthem? They booed. <laughs> like, we lose our ever-loving mind if two players put a knee down on the ground. The entire stadium booed the national anthem. Not for something that happened like last week, like a police shooting or, or, a, or a school shooting. No, this is from like 50 years ago when the government basically gave them no aid and there were things that came out in the media where the, the upper class was oppressing and we're basically going to just let them be. And they do not forget. <laughs> so, so apparently, like, England goes nuts for their national team when they play football, soccer, whatever you want to call it. And uh, people from Liverpool don't care how England does. Interesting. Now, I'm not giving you the right to take, you know, to get a hardened heart towards whoever is your, your leader or authority structure. I'm just saying that um, I was actually talking with this woman from Liverpool in the pub yesterday. Everyone comes up to you when you bring your two boys. Like, we actually weren't supposed to get in. The owner sees us, and he goes, and he's from England, and he's like, oh, lads, I got a couple of extra tickets for you guys. And we get in just because I brought my boys. Usually I get in because I bring my arm candy. But I, I brought in, it's because of my boys. Uh, and everyone loves them, and they were treated great. But we got in this long conversation, and, and, sh and this woman from Liverpool started talking about this. And, and here's the thing. They are carrying a weight. They, they carry a remembrance. That's a natural thing for a people. And then they look out for each other. And, and there's this whole dynamic that just fascinates me about, about uh, them. And it's, I think it's part of the reason why I love this, the team. But I think every human being can, can resonate. Certainly those of us that live um, in America can, can resonate when we look at the history of our country and go like, okay, there's some jacked up things. But there's at least something where we cannot stand. Like, have you, have you noticed in America, like if you come from money, like people almost don't respect you. Like it's almost like an embarrassment, like your daddy, this or that or whatever. In, in England, they still have this thing like you're better than somebody else. So not everywhere, but like some people. Like, and this is like Western. Uh, it's amazing when you just get outside of your little box and realize how different parts of the world think. And of course, we know how these things work in other parts of the Far East and so forth. There's still these class systems and so forth. The American spirit goes like, screw that class system thing. There's something powerful with that. But there's also something with, with this dynamic that Jesus brings in. And he's... He's taking the religious power structures that be, and he's systematically breaking them down and exposing them for their lies. And I think there is much of the American spirit that picks up on some of that that's good, really, really good. But at times, we kind of binge on freedom. And freedom can become an, itself an idol. And the reality of the kingdom is it always keeps these good things in tension. And it, and it presses me and it makes me uncomfortable. Because I like to find the things in the world that like are good and I just like, you can't have too much of a good thing, right? I mean, that's a nice slogan, but like I, I'm pretty sure the devil invented that. You can't have too much of a good thing. Well, isn't like that the epitome of a bad thing? Like, I can have too much Krispy Kreme. I'm from the South. Is that here? We do have that in L.A. We have other Donut King, whatever you guys have in Donuts. We have that. I, I don't know. It, everything I really like, I can have too much of it and it becomes a bad thing. 
over and abundance, indulgence. Jesus then takes the reality of, of the fullness of freedom with inheritance. And on one end, this goes, go try that out. No one's looking out for you. And no one gave him anything. That was like freedom overload. We don't actually want freedom overload. We want freedom in tension. We want the structures that oppress and that keep us from the fullness of our dreams. We want that removed. And we want a space where we look out for the person to the left and to the right. And that's the kingdom. We're in the kingdom. You leave some on the external and the periphery for the broken. And those that are too shameful to beg, they know that that's for them. That's in here. That's the heart of the Father. That's what God is like. But what else is in here is a Father that confronts the comparing, egotistical, self-righteous older brother that had done everything right. And this is what he says. Now his older son was in the field. He came and drew near. He says, his, his brother's come and your father's killed the fattened calf. That's what the servant tells him. The, the, the brother then says, he's angry. He refused to go into the party, which shames his father. His father came out and entreated him. In other words, his father was supposed to cut him off because he just shamed his father by not going in to the party. This is a huge deal. And his father humbles himself again, takes on the shame, picks up the dress like he did for the younger brother, does the same thing for the older brother. But he goes, you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. When the son of yours came, because he can't even say his name, who's devoured your property and with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He is pissed. But the father says this, son, you're always with me. And all that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So there's a tension. We don't know how either brother is going to respond. And Jesus just lefts it, leaves it, and goes on to the next parable. Why the flip does Jesus not answer the questions that come up in his own parables so often? You know, sometimes I just wonder, like, you know, in, in back in seminary, Bible school, wherever you learn about how to preach, they always tell you how to apply it. Jesus didn't apply anything. He just brings up all these questions, leaves the tension sitting in the room, and just goes, and you go, think about that. <laughs> right, no one taught me to preach like that. If they did, we could be done at 1115 every, day, every Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you get in the Bible more often. I don't know. Um, so, <laughs> that I'm joking, but here's, here's the, here's the real reality. The tension is real. Let yourself sit in that tension for a moment. Let yourself imagine that maybe the older brother and the younger brother aren't as far from you as, because they're not far from me. Maybe the realities that they bring up are closer than we'd like to admit. The younger brother comes to the end of himself. That's a gift. He wants the freedom and he finds what he thinks he wants, makes him miserable and helpless. No one's in this free world to give him anything. 
And where's the older brother? He's still at home doing all the right things. His heart hasn't even been exposed. But he comes to himself, confronts the issue of his shame and his worth. And the question he's left with is this. Will the prodigal receive identity as a son and not a slave? And let the father cover his shame, restore his place in the family, and turn towards his true identity. In short, if you want to remember one thing about the question of the younger brother, it's this. It's an issue of restoration. Will the father fully restore him? Will he let his father fully restore him? We put so much blame on God to show up. Oftentimes, the issue is that he's looking to see if you will respond to his invitation to cover your shame. The older brother's response is offense and it's comparison and it's performance and it's pride. He wants vengeance and he has a false sense of justice. He demands things from the little brother and even his father. He's got a false entitlement. He's focused on himself. And in the midst of it, the question he's left with was, will he let go of this false righteousness, this earned inheritance by effort? Will he let go? of the offense and let the father restore him. They both need to be restored. One left, one didn't. They're both not there. Maybe you've never left. Maybe you've never completely cut God off. Maybe you've never stormed out and really had a good wilderness. Maybe you need one. Who's the one that looks closer to being fully restored? Probably the prodigal. But the question still remains, will he let his dad cover him? Will he receive it? Or will he just keep cowering with a robe on his back, but he's still a broken vessel? And the older brother, he had his inheritance in the first sentence of this entire prodigal son story. Nothing his younger brother did compromised anything that was coming to him. He was offended at the grace of his own dad. He did not understand what God was like, and he did not understand how the kingdom works. And what it exposed was what was really going on in his own heart, in his own soul. Comparison is the welcome mat deception. I think that was Bill Johnson. Comparison will rob you of your dreams and your destiny, and it will kill the faithfulness that you've invested. And you can be someone that never left, that did all the right things, that was faithful on the outside, but your heart is not all in. The Father wants to restore you too. I want to close with this. Um, I, I have one little class of students. Uh, they're, they're in a program called Ekbalo, and I got to speak at their graduation. I teach them like Fridays during the year. They're an amazing group. Um, they're, they're just the most outstanding kids. And they're from all, most of them are from some part of like LA, a lot of different rough areas. And it's, it's one of those ministry schools that, that uh, they teach them how to encounter the Holy Spirit. They teach them how to pray, but they also teach them how to actually do hard things and not just do what they want and feel good. A lot of ministry schools these days um, and places you can go, it's just, it's all about like, how fun is this going to be? You know, like, I'm just going to get into daddy God's lap and he's going to love on me and lavish me with all good things. And I love all that stuff too. Um, but formation of a disciple has to involve daddy God's lap and the place in the wilderness where the voice is silent 
and you don't know where to go, what happened, and how you got there. Every prophetic voice in Scripture went into the wilderness. Jesus went into the wilderness at the start of his ministry, and he did not hear one sound from his father. He heard a whole lot of sounds from the voice of the enemy. What endured were the scriptures that had already been put in his soul. And the fact that he was operating out of the fact that his father had said, this is my son, identity, whom I love. Listen to him at his baptism. And he believed the voice of his father. And when he needed a fresh word, he didn't require his father to speak because he wasn't speaking. The enemy was speaking and he responded to the enemy with the word of God. Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word seeds in the voice. He let it go deep. I just invite you afresh this morning. I want you to invite you to stand if you would. I don't know if you guys do music afterwards. You can totally get ready for that. If you do or don't, it doesn't matter. And I want to I read what I read over these students, and I've adjusted it as a bit of a prophetic call to you all at Restoration LA. So you can close your eyes. Just get comfortable. You can put your hand on your heart or your, out in front of you, just however you want to receive and interact with the Lord this morning. I believe that this is just some prophetic thoughts and encouragement on how the culture is twisting the minds of the church. This is not the church of Restoration in LA, the way that the culture is twisting things. I just want to remind you who you are. I preach this to myself as much as all of you. And I want to remind you that the darkness of the culture is not a sign of the times. The light of the church is the sign of the times. We are salt and light and our foundation is scripture and its spirit. As I've mentioned, remember that what God is like is the most important question of the word of God and the most important question for your life to live by. Remember that scripture isn't just true, it's more true than true. The layers of truth hold weight from simple Sunday school principles, but they go deeper and they go deeper and deeper further than you'll ever realize. It will humble you and it will sustain you. Remember that the culture wants to redefine what God is like, his identity, your identity. And this book that we live by has endured empires and kingdoms and dictators and genocide and countless regimes. It will endure past America. And your hunger for his spirit and revival must be shaped and sustained by the food that feeds you here in the secret place. We talk a lot about our dreams in our spirit-filled revival cultures, but I encourage you to catch his dream. So many great leaders led with a vision of a dream, not a map or agenda. Dreams are powerful and dreams are significant. Dr. Keaton had a dream. He didn't have a map or an agenda, he had a dream. And Jesus shared a dream and it was called the kingdom. Get a glimpse and a taste of this kingdom and it will ruin you forever. Let the mundane of life touch his kingdom realm and you'll never do dishes or housework or the job that you hate or the diapers ever the same again. Resist the allure of the stage. Follow, resist the allure of the stage. Resist the allure of your follower count and resist the allure of the crowd. And then maybe he can use you to shape one. He doesn't owe you a ministry. He gave you his life. Will you continually give him, give him yours no matter how humble a setting you find yourself? Or like the older brother, will you hold your faithfulness hostage to a standard that he never set? Abraham had a dream he never got to live long enough to see. He saw in part, make sure your dream is bigger than your life, then you know that you have his dream. Burn for revival, for the masses of the harvest. But I humbly submit to you that praying for revival is not a biblical prayer. 
if that prayer assumes that the harvest of revival is not ready. Jesus never taught us to pray for the harvest. He said it's ready. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. It's ready. Pray for yourselves. The prayer is for us, for those to work the harvest. Prayers for revival are for those to go and work the harvest fields that are already ready. Remember that Jesus' method of the harvest focused on just a few. Don't discount the few he puts in front of you and don't discount the mundane parts of life. And I close with this. Spend time meditating on the saints throughout history. Reflect on those like Brother Lawrence, who was never more than a cook amongst monks. Yet he's honored throughout history for practicing the presence of God in a way that makes one long for the simple spaces for God's presence to invade. Practice the presence of God and then make your bed. Do the dishes. Wash others' feet. Start with the feet of the person you least enjoy. Serve the church. Learn to love unconditionally. Drink from his word. Wrestle with its implications. Ask questions. Invite others in. Mentor someone younger. Take on jobs and projects that stretch you beyond your natural gifting. Love the lost. Listen to the lost. Then they may actually listen to you. Jesus taught the most profound principles through his daily life, through bread, through agriculture, through fishing. So here's just a suggestion. Learn to bake bread. The time that it takes to bake a loaf of bread, plant something that your children will see mature that you'll never see. Maybe go fishing. Maybe even try camping alone. I hate camping. Spend time in the silence of the wilderness. Silence the noise. Silence the distractions. Let him minister to your soul in the silence and get rid of your phones often. Buy paper books, read them twice. Call your mom if you're blessed to still have her. Forgive your dad. Write the letter to your siblings that you wish they'd write you. Don't wait for a crisis to live the way that's available to you right now. Life is short, eternity isn't. Live for the rewards of eternity. Care about the politics, love your nation, but remember that this word will remain when American politics are just a forgotten place in history and that this nation will one day have an end. Don't let the darkness of the culture drive your theology or your prophetic words. Let the light of the gospel lead you always. Make your dreams saturated in his. Make your life's history with him and for him, and he'll make history with you. You are a people of restoration. Remember, his invitation is to restore you. Whether you're caught in the shame of the younger brother or the offense of the older brother, let the good father restore you. And then, you're sh and then Restoration LA, share that story of restoration. Come Holy Spirit. Minister to hearts this morning. Start with mine.